If you're a fan of reality TV, today's reading from Galatians is going to be a real treat. It's the kind of drama that would have misleading teasers all season leading up to the episode that contains the final confrontation with two huge personalities clashing. Here's what happened. We're not entirely sure exactly when this incident fits into the chronology of the early Christian church, but at some point Paul was in Antioch. And Peter, also known as Cephas, eventually arrived as well. Now, there are two Antiochs in the Bible. Both cities are in what is now Turkey. Pisidian Antioch was north and west of Judea in what was called Asia Minor. Paul and Barnabas had evangelized that city on their first missionary journey. But that's not the Antioch where our story for today happens. We're in the other one, Antioch of Syria, which was pretty much straight north of Jerusalem near the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. This was the place famous for being where Christians were first called Christians. It was also the base from which Paul and Barnabas carried out their mission work in the Gentile regions, and it was the leading city in the province of Syria at the time. Since it had never been part of the nation of Israel, it was a solidly Gentile city, although a good number of Jews lived there as well. When the early Christians had faced persecution in Judea, they had scattered far and wide, some apparently ended up in Antioch, and by the time Barnabas arrived as an official missionary to Antioch, he found a solid group of believers, both Jew and Gentile, together. This was one of the first churches that the Bible explicitly states included believers from both groups, and an example of what we talked about in our first sermon on this topic. They really truly were a church for everyone, just the way God wants. And that's where Paul tells the Galatians he was when this drama went down. He was in Antioch, and Peter, Cephas, joined the believers there. Peter understood what Paul did, and we do too, that the church is for all people, that salvation and justification are by grace through faith in Jesus alone, and that the Old Testament rules and regulations which set the Jews apart as a separate people in order to preserve the promise of the Savior had fulfilled their purpose when Jesus came and died and rose again and that those rules were no longer in effect. In Acts chapter 10, we even hear the story of Jesus teaching Peter this truth by giving him a vision of a sheet full of animals that it would have been a sin to eat according to Jewish ceremonial law, and telling him to slaughter and eat one of them. In that account, it takes Peter a little effort to give up his old customs and habits, but he does. Paul tells his readers in Galatia that Peter lived by that lesson, he had been in the habit of eating with the Gentiles, something that would have been forbidden for a Jew. He knew that the Old Testament laws no longer applied, and he enjoyed fellowship with his Gentile brothers and sisters in faith. The gospel had taken root in Antioch and in Peter. The result was a relaxed atmosphere of fellowship. If a Jewish believer wanted to refrain from previously forbidden foods and only eat kosher things, sure, they could. If they didn't, they could enjoy a bacon sandwich with their Gentile friends. No real emphasis seems to have been put on observing or not observing Jewish ceremonies. That lasted until one day some men arrived in Antioch. When they arrived, Peter suddenly stopped eating with the Gentiles. Instead, he withdrew from them and kept his distance. These men were from James, Paul says. And now that actually doesn't mean that James had necessarily sent them himself. But it does give us an idea of why Peter might have felt some pressure when they arrived. James was Jesus' half-brother, and by this point in the history of the church, he was really the most dominant figure in the Christian church in Jerusalem. 
Think of him as a sort of head pastor, or even district president if he was Wells. He was such a big deal in Jerusalem that his name became almost synonymous with Jerusalem. Peter would have known full well what James's position on Christian freedom and the obsolescence of Jewish customs was. James agreed with Peter and Paul that it was appropriate and God-pleasing to join in fellowship with the Gentile believers. Maybe Peter wasn't even afraid of what the men who had arrived from Jerusalem would think. But Paul explains what motivated Peter to do this. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Whether or not the men from Jerusalem were part of this group, Peter seems to have been concerned about what kind of fallout he might experience or trouble he might experience if word got back to Jerusalem about how he was engaging in fellowship with the Gentiles. The circumcision group was a problematic group within the early Christian church that was really struggling to wrap their minds around the fact that Old Testament Jewish customs were no longer required. In fact, they kind of rejected the idea. They believed and taught that in order to be a good Christian, one had to believe in Jesus, but not just that. They had to um, also follow all of the Jewish rules and regulations as well, including circumcision, hence the name the circumcision group. Sometimes we also see this group called the Judaizers. They could cause some real trouble for Peter. They had for Paul, to the point that he had to come back to Jerusalem and defend himself in front of a church council. Although, since we don't know exactly when Peter and Paul had this dispute, maybe that hadn't happened yet. Either way, they were, unfortunately, a pretty powerful influence within the church and could cause some serious trouble. The problem is that when Peter stopped having fellowship with the Gentiles by stopping eating with them and withdrawing from them, he lent credence to this false message of the Judaizers. You can imagine what it must have felt like to be one of the Gentile believers, right? One day, you're enjoying supper with Peter, one of the twelve himself, and you're viewed as a brother or sister and equal in God's kingdom, his church. It must have been great. Then all of a sudden, some guys from Jerusalem show up and Peter starts acting aloof and like he can't hang out with a dirty Gentile like you. Then perhaps one by one, other Jewish Christians follow his lead and start separating themselves from you. Even Barnabas, the first missionary who had shown up in your town, finally did. How confusing, how painful. Paul, for one, wasn't going to stand for it. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, he tells us. That is some seriously strong language, but it was a serious situation. Paul calls it what it is, hypocrisy. Peter and the other Jewish believers had said that they believed that Gentiles were equal in God's kingdom and that salvation depended on faith in Jesus alone. Their actions said something else. Their actions said, maybe you might be a little bit more saved if you follow Jewish ceremonial law, or worse yet, maybe you can't be saved unless you do. This was, as Paul writes, not in line with the truth of the gospel. So he stood up in front of everyone and called Peter and the others out in front of everyone. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. We get it, right? Peter's in the wrong and very clearly at that. Paul has every right to call him out, but think for just a second about what is going on. For us, Paul's place as a hero of faith is absolutely cemented. Back then, maybe not so much. Think about who he was confronting. This was Peter. The one who had been one of the twelve disciples, but not just that, one of the closest to Jesus, even among the twelve? 
This was Peter, who, whether by group consent or just by his bold and quick-to-speak nature, was the de facto leader of the Twelve. Paul wasn't one of the Twelve. He wasn't even originally a believer, but an enemy of the church. We see Paul's apostleship questioned and devalued by people in his time, and he has to spend time and ink in his letters defending his right to claim that title as one sent by Christ. So Paul stood a lot to lose, or Paul stood a, to lose a lot by going up against Peter. Peter could have potentially ruined his career. Even just questioning Peter could possibly ruin Paul's reputation. It probably would have been better for him and easier for him certainly to just let things slide. He could explain it later. It certainly would have been easier. But he didn't. And he makes it clear why. Peter's actions were, again as he wrote, not in line with the truth of the gospel. The stakes were incredibly high. This wasn't just a matter of hurt feelings for the Gentiles. The gospel was being misrepresented. This was a matter of eternal life and death. As a footnote to this event, Paul summarizes the message of the gospel. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Whether intentionally or not, Peter's actions were preaching a different message, something opposite of that, a message that you are justified by faith, but you must also follow these laws. This could lead the Gentiles to despair and lead Jews to put confidence in something other than Christ, namely their observance of their Jewish customs for salvation. This isn't just a mistake or misleading. This is faith-destroying. So out of love for the gospel and out of love for all the souls of everyone involved, Paul did the hard thing and confronted Peter. God records this event because he wants his church to be willing to do the same thing. Our readings today have shown that as plain as day, whether it's God telling Ezekiel his responsibilities to the people in his spiritual care are like the responsibilities of a watchman in a city, or Jesus giving instructions on how to carry out church discipline in a loving and winsome, yet serious way. Paul opposing Peter is just another example of this in action. Of course, we don't really have a circumcision group in the church anymore today. But think with me for a second about what other false teachings which are not in line with the truth of the gospel might exist in today's church. Are there still ideas floating around Christianity that are not in line with the gospel? That tells us that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone? Might there be people who say you have to follow certain rules or observe specific practices in order to actually be Christian and saved? Sure there are. And there are a lot of them. Some people believe and teach that you have to be baptized by immersion, otherwise your baptism doesn't count. That makes the form of baptism something you trust in more than really God's promises attached to baptism. Others teach that unless you have miraculous gifts of the Spirit, you can't be saved. Others teach that you have to worship on Saturday or on Sunday. Still others teach that by not drinking alcohol, you can prove your faith. It's all work righteousness at the end of the day. Even the simple idea that in order to be a Christian and to be saved, all you have to do is follow God's laws and try your hardest. Even that is a sneaky form of work righteousness. First, we have to make sure that we don't fall into Peter's error and live in ways that seem to confirm a false teaching. But that might actually be the easy part in these cases. 
It's easy for us to stand against our favorite classic false teachings. Where this gets difficult is when it gets personal. It's not the hypothetical Catholic, Baptist, or Seventh-day Adventist that we have trouble confronting. We can do that all day long in Bible class. It's our friend, our family member, our fellow church member. That's when things get hard. Our friends, family members, and especially fellow church members are not so likely to hold to a specific false teaching any more than maybe any one of us is. But there are definitely times when they will be caught up in an error or a sin, just like Peter was, and it will be up to us to confront them like Paul. Maybe it doesn't seem the same at first. Your friend who lives with their boyfriend or girlfriend, or your family member who doesn't attend worship, might not stand for an outright false teaching. They're not heretics, right? They're just struggling to understand that a certain habit or action or choice is a sin. But is it really different? How do they believe they'll be saved? If they're comfortable living in opposition to God's word, odds are they feel comfortable doing that because they're at least somewhat confident that they're good enough on their own. That's really just another sneaky form of work righteousness. It's the idea that maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. I trust that I'll go to heaven because I'm not a bad person. It's a belief that is absolutely not in line with God's gospel. To believe the gospel requires a person to believe God's law. I can't believe I'm saved by Christ alone if I don't truly believe I need saving. And if I'm holding on to some sin because I think it's not such a big deal, then I really don't believe I need saving. That's not an attitude of faith, it's one of unbelief. This is what is at risk. The very souls and eternities of the people around us, in our lives, our families, and in our church. You can see why intervention is required. But how often do we fail to intervene? All too often, and for really poor reasons if you think about it. Why don't you speak up when you see a brother or sister in faith doing something you know they know better than to do? Why do we give our tacit approval to our friends and loved ones who are caught in sin? Maybe we're scared of the fallout. But if that's the case, maybe we need to realize once again what's at stake. Are you really more scared of the confrontation than the potential of losing that person's soul for eternity? Maybe we're scared of losing the relationship, but that's no good either, and it's really selfish to the core. Do you really love that person so little that you would rather let them be condemned on the last day than risk losing your relationship with them and the joy they bring you in this life? Maybe we're just scared we don't have the right words, but you have God's word. You have a church where you can study it and learn it better, and a pastor and family and friends and faith and countless other resources at your fingertips. It's not really an excuse either, is it? Our failures to say the hard things show our selfishness, our lack of love for others, our lack of love for God's word, and ultimately our own lack of faith. The consequences to our inaction can be severe. Sin breeds sin. Peter's withdrawal from the Gentiles certainly hurt them, but it eventually led Barnabas astray too. When we act like sin is okay, or when we fail to say the hard thing, we're hypocrites too, and the same thing happens. Churches that fail to live up to this calling from God, to say the hard thing to each other when it's necessary, suffer. Instead of a culture of fellowship and love, you get an apathetic group that doesn't know what they stand for. This is not the church God wants. 
it's not what he called you to be. So don't be it. Say the hard thing when you have to. As your pastor, I'll keep trying to do the same. It's all we can do when we realize how blessed we are to know the truth of the gospel. The gospel is really kind of like a secret family recipe, one that's protected for generations. We love and treasure those family recipes and protect them jealously. How much more should we do that when it's the one unique message in this world? It's the one way to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's the one way to enter his kingdom, be a member of his church, and live with him forever. You've been set free from all your sins. You're set free from ever trying to make up for them or trying to earn God's love and favor. Don't let anyone ever come between you and that knowledge. And when you see others letting themselves be separated from that gospel truth, whether by ignorance, willful sins, or whatever else, don't tolerate it. It's not worth it. The stakes are too high. Say the hard thing. It's your responsibility, but it's also your privilege as a member of God's church. Now, we're not sure how Peter responded to this. Paul doesn't tell us. And depending on the chronology of this event, we just might not know. We can hope and probably even assume that Peter took Paul's reproach to to heart. We know he understood this lesson at least once in Scripture. In the same way, we won't always be sure of how people will respond to us when we confront them with hard truths. We'll talk more about that and what comes after the confrontation next week. So come back for more. But for now, we can be comforted by knowing that when God calls us to do this difficult thing, he's already given us the tools and the motivation, his powerful law, and even more, his gospel. We can trust that he'll work through those tools as we strive to be the church he wants, one that says the hard things. Amen.